Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Illustrator and artist Oslo Davis has a, a bit of a long connection with Triple R and, amongst other things, has filled in on this year's show from time to time, keeping my seat warm while I've been gallivanting off at festivals interstate and kind of keeping my eye on new trends in work being made outside of Melbourne. Uh, he's also drawn for the New York Times, The Guardian, done cartoons for The Age and designed a tram as well as this year's Radiothon poster uh, for April Amnesty. So, um, Oslo, welcome back to Triple R. Richard J. Watts, thanks for having me. Now, um, <laughs> tell us about the design for April Amnesty this year. The, the theme is forget-me-not. So you've interpreted that somewhat literally in a way. Yeah, well, it was a bit of a, a, a side, uh, a screwball, a sideball. What's what's the phrase? But anyway, it's sort of this sort of bolt that came from the blue from the marketing people, the great, nice, fantastic communications and marketing people here at Triple R, saying this year's theme is forget me not. So I thought, whoa, okay, that's that's interesting. It's a it's a tough one, and it's actually quite an exciting challenge to sort of throw something at. To, to have something thrown at you like that and you have to respond. Because, you know, it, it could be something a little bit more safe. It could be, you know, share the love or, you know, uh, support us in need or something a little bit more, um, you know, More planned. direct or yeah, something. Yeah, but forget me not is kind of, well, what's, what does that mean? And, of course, it relates to the flowers, forget me not. It re- relates to the sentiment of hang on, we're still here, uh, don't take us for granted uh, and remember us if you've got a bit of you know, scare, uh, spare cash uh, rattling around in the bottom of your pocket. So it was kind of an interesting concept and I initially thought, well, what are we going to do with this? But I came around to the idea and, and just thought, well, this is kind of fun and it sort of suggests a feeling rather than any sort of literal interpretation and that feeling is kind of an embrace, uh, a reunion almost, a kind of uh, catching up. Uh, so I had all these ideas sort of thrown, you know, running through my head and uh, one that sort of eventually evolved out of, out of uh, thinking about it was this sort of, this hug or this, you know, meeting someone or bringing flowers and having your dog tag along and <laughs> so that's that's kind of what it was all about it's for me kind of nice to be able to as you say to to explore an idea more laterally rather than directly and yes there is a direct reference to the theme you've got somebody literally hugging a radio with a triple r sticker on it <laughs> and holding forget me not flowers so there's a literal element there but what you've captured is an emotion uh, a visual representation of the the place that Triple R holds in so many people's lives. Yeah, that's right. I think it's always easy to do the literal thing. And anyone who creates art, and you know, I know I know a lot of artists who listen to your show uh, are hearing this and and probably agreeing that uh, it's very easy to take the straight line to something. It's much harder to create something that has an emotional engagement. I'm not 100% sure that I got there with this one, but. Uh, 
certainly my intention was just to take it a little bit beyond that idea of of uh, you know catching up. There needed to be some sort of mood there, you know, whether it's the expression uh, on the face of the dog or the person or the way the radio is being hugged or or the colours or you know the flowers. All these sorts of elements have to come together to create this sort of X factor of emotion. And um, as I said, I'm not sure whether I did it, but still, that's kind of what you're always trying to get to eventually. In terms of the brief you were given, were you restricted to a certain colour palette, for example, or was it open slather? Because the fact that you've kept it just so a a simple two-colour design, A, means that it's fairly easily produced, but it's also clean and simple and striking. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of... um, I've been doing a lot of these drawings lately that sort of uh, look like... uh, uh, screen prints or riso prints from those old risograph uh, photocopier machines where you print three, two or three colours over the top of each other to create some sort of mix and blend of, of, of the colours. So I've been playing around with this sort of idea for a while and it just sort of segged nicely into this one. Um, I tend to do that. <laughs> I tend to, like, I, I've done work for the monthly and, and the age and then something like this and um, you could probably line up sort of my themes, oh yes, so that sort of thing that he did there is carrying over into the triple R work, which will probably carry over into something else, you know, a couple of months later. Um, just because I have everything set up in my studio ready to go, I don't want to just throw everything out and uh, and bring in new paints or whatever. But uh, yeah, for sure, it's, it's something that I uh, really enjoyed playing with and probably will continue to muck around with. There's something too I like about the design for April Amnesty that you've created which uh, I guess references your skill as an illustrator illustrator and cartoonist is capturing a moment in the simplest possible way so it is quickly and clearly communicated to the viewer. Yeah, that's a tough thing. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, like Lee Hobbs who who does picture books for kids and uh, I... I interviewed him once and I really wanted to get to know why or understand how he can create something so simple that has so much power. And 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 he said, well, that's the goal and that's what he spends, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of his life trying to do to get old Tom to look as simple and as pure and as uh, impactful as possible with the least amount of brush strokes. And that's what it's about, isn't it? You, you look at those uh, Charles Schultz peanuts sketches that he does. Uh, no one can copy that. I don't know if you've ever tried to draw peanuts characters, Richard, but uh, it's very, very difficult. You would think it's a circle with a few dots and, and a mouth, uh, you know, for eyes and a mouth. Um, but there's so much more going on there with that. And and so hopefully as I get older and hopefully get better, my work becomes simpler. I don't have to muck around with too much stuff. I don't have to do too many excessive lines and hopefully uh, the sort of simplicity comes through and has a, has a bigger impact. Now, Oslo, we talked about the creating an emotional impact for a kind of resonance for April Amnesty to remind people of their connection to Triple R. Talk to us about your connection to Triple R. When did you first kind of connect with the station? Yeah, I, I, grew, up in, I grew up in Tasmania. I grew up in uh, a small farming town, not far from where Hannah Gadsby grew up, in fact, and I'm a little bit older than her, but... 
the radio down there was terrible. Um, and when I was a Christian in my teens, I um, DJed at a Christian radio station called 7DBS. And I loved radio. Radio was just fantastic. And I used to go in there with all my own CDs and, and LPs and play those. And um, uh, So I had this keen interest in radio, but there was never a station that I gravitated towards. And I think the biggest problem I had with it, and I was thinking this on the ride here, is that so much radio is so slick. It's so clean and produced. And this is not a backhanded compliment, but what I loved with Triple R when I came and moved to Melbourne, uh, you know, almost 25 years ago, was that it, it was it was this unpolished gem of a radio station. There were there were LPs. I remember listening to a skipping LP for about fifteen minutes on on Triple R one one time back in the early two thousands. It was hilarious. I think I even you know called out to my wife to come and listen to this skipping track. Um, but it, it's fantastic. People don't speak perfectly. Uh, the back announcing is sometimes wrong. You know, people get things wrong with the carts and the, the announcements and whatever. But that's beautiful. It's, it's so nice. I, and, you know, heaven forbid anyone wants to flip over to those crappy other stations and, and just hear how they get it so annoyingly, uh, you know, right in terms of production it's just almost unlistenable to, listen to you know there is definitely something about the, the human factor of community radio that certainly what you're describing really resonates for me as well because uh, even the most professional and, and uh, long-term announcers can uh, suddenly turn on the mic and go oh whoops I don't have any music queued up let me just chat for a moment or two while I desperately scramble for a track and put it on and it reminds you that yeah there are people uh, behind yeah. the microphone doing this thing out of love uh, yeah. for a sense of community, a sense of connection uh, and out of loyalty to Triple R. Yeah, I think the, and the world these days with AI, you know, starting to take over and, um, you know, slick sort of social media and personal profiles and, and marketing taking over things, um, I think this sort of um, throwback to something handmade is so refreshing and I'm so happy that Triple R hasn't lost that in, in the, at least the 25 years I've been listening. Uh, it's definitely still raw, rough and ready and so engaging and so interesting. Of course, I don't listen to everything. I don't like everything on Triple R. Who would? I mean, that, that would be a miracle. But I love enough of it to turn it on when I you know, make my porridge in the morning or, or uh, you know, drive home from soccer training and, uh, you know, in the evenings or whatever. It's, it's just great and there's nothing like it. And when did you make the jump to being an announcer? Uh, well, that's sort of evolved over the years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I've sort of done bits and pieces over the last 10 years or so. Um, yeah, as I said, got a taste of it back in Christian radio um, uh, many years ago, and uh, not Christian now, but uh, still loved uh, loved that idea of uh, creating something live. I think every announcer here would appreciate that, uh, that there's some magic that's created, especially in interview situations, as you know, Richard, there's, there's always an unknown factor there, and you never know where something's going to go and flying by the seat of your pants and, and all that sort of thing. And that's the thrill and the fun. And I think that comes across 
uh, for an audience, and, and that's that's another reason why we should love and support Triple R. I think. It would be lovely if we could get some more subscribers uh, today as part of our April Amnesty, which runs through until the end of the month. There are prizes to be won, of course. There's also the warm inner glow you get from supporting a community radio station and supporting something that will expose you perhaps to music you've, you would not hear anywhere else or uh, on this show introduce you to an artist or an actor or a production that otherwise might fly under the radar. Being able to support independent theatre, small galleries, artist-run space, for example, is something that I think is really important and I love doing on this particular show, for example, which is why when I do gallivant off to a festival somewhere, it's nice to know that it's in safe hands. Oh, well, always, always happy to be there, Richard. It's, uh, as you said, I like keeping your seat warm. Um, but uh, I won't uh, say how I keep that warm. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do want to subscribe to Triple R as part of April Amnesty, uh, a subscription is 85 bucks, $40 concession, or if you're feeling particularly passionate, or if you want to subscribe as a business, 150 bucks, And then there you can also subscribe as a band, an artist, or a DJ for 85 And if you can't afford a donation, then even... Uh, sorry, if you can't afford a subscription, uh, then even a donation, anything over $2 is tax deductible, which helps you come tax time and will help the station as well. Just jump online, rrr.org.au. Although, any final words about the significance of Triple R in Melbourne? Oh, gee, I don't know. But um, I think a lot of people listen to it. There's a lot of um, sort of radio, uh, what do they call it, polls or, you know, they have lists, how, you know, is uh, 774 beating 3AW or something like that. And Triple R is never in those lists. But that's, I think Triple R is has a really wide um, reach that's not recorded. It's it's actually, I'm sure you guys know it better than I do, but um, there's a lot of people listening to Triple R out there and it has a massive impact. And to fly on the smell of a of an oily rag is, is just amazing work and should totally be supported. rrr.org.au if you would like to support Triple R by subscribing during this year's April Amnesty. I've been chatting with illustrator and artist Oslo Davis who created the artwork for this year's April Amnesty campaign, Forget Me Not. Oslo, thanks heaps for coming in. Thanks, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Art Attack Attack is our fortnightly visual arts review segment and Tyson Nath joins us in the studio to talk about a few shows over at Linden New Art. Tommy, yeah, lovely feel, to see you. Oh, lovely to see you too. It's been a few weeks. I feel like you've been a bit sick. I've been a bit busy and Ace is doing Ace. So um, yeah, like I'm here. I got here. I'm and, glad you have. And I've managed to see a show which, I, as I was just saying to you off air, it is like this is a really, really good set of shows. So it's not just one good show and a couple of mediocre shows, which sometimes happens in a space that has many shows, but this is like three killer shows that you may expect to see somewhere like the MCA or the NGV. It's, a, it's institution quality um, curatorial work happening here, but also artwork. Um, so it is at Linden New Art, which is on the extension of Ackland Street in St Kilda. I think most people probably know Linden, but if you don't, go there. 
Um, it's an old, Linden's like an old... It's an old mansion. Yeah, yeah, an old mansion, an old Victorian sort of mansion that's been renovated more recently to be a little bit more contemporary art. So it has kind of like a newish entrance. You go down the side now and it's um, it's it's sort of separate spaces that are in a domestic-like setting. So you always get an interesting reading of the works because they do have to respond to this kind of um, Colonial vibe. Of, yeah. <laughs> really? Of yeah. The architecture. Yeah. yeah. A grand old dame of St Kilda, um, but in a in an art context. So I'm yeah. always interested to see how artists like these uh, respond to that kind of context with lots of windows, floorboards. You know, it's not like a usual art gallery with concrete floors. Yeah. Put it that so, way. Like it's still elements of the white cube, but, but with, as you say, rounded um, corners. Yeah. <laughs> and windows. And which windows. We, we don't normally have. And so. ornate architraves and things like that. So yeah. it, it does affect the work, and I think often can affect the work in a really good way, and this is one of those examples. So it's three shows within Linden. Um, one of them is by Abdul Rahman Abdullah, uh, and that's three separate works. And then you have Nell, who is the you know, artist, you know, I, I think you could call her a superstar artist from Sydney, um, and her suite of works is called Old New Wave, great title. Uh, and then upstairs you have local artist Kate Just and her self-care action series. So the three works, you know, are in separate rooms, but you do tend to sort of like work, walk through them all together. It's not like you just go and see one room. It, it just doesn't really work like that, Lyndon. So downstairs you have Abdul Rahman and Nell's works. And um, I know that you had Abdul Rahman on the show... Uh, About three or two, yeah. four weeks ago, I think. So I, I can't remember the exact date. I should have Googled that. But. Yeah, so anyone interested in this could probably listen back on demand and um, listen to his own words because I did hear that interview as well and it was really quite enlightening to hear him talk. His work's quite personal. So it often looks at um, mythology, uh, you know, relating to his Malaysian background and his religious background, but also it's very much tr traditionally sculptural. So there's not many artists working in this way today that is very much time labour-intensive um, carving practice. So these three works that he's presented are, are from quite a span of time, actually. I didn't realise until I looked at the notes today, but the first one, Practical Magic, which I loved, is, is like a camel sitting with its legs folded. You know how camels fold their legs up on a big coil of white rope. And that one is from 2016. So that's called Practical Magic. And it, I love the way that these works are situated in the room. So it's kind of sitting just in front of the, the old mantelpiece. So like I said before, it's not trying to ignore the fact that it is an unusual domestic setting. It's kind of like celebrating it in a way. So And they also really hold the space quite powerfully these works so it's just one work in each room so that practical magic work the camel which is called trust in Allah but tie your camel uh, and that is from 2016 and then there's one Barak in the front space so you've got this sort of like big bay window and Barak is a it's from 2000, 2020 and it's actually a, a figure of Islamic law it's like a Pegasus from what I can see, but obviously not called a Pegasus in Islamic culture. But Barak is this enigmatic figure of a horse, a winged horse. Um, and it's said to derive from the Arabic word for lightning, something that is vividly real yet fleeting and immaterial. And this work is, for me, really quite ethereal. There's something about it that makes you want to spend time in the space, but also think beyond 
the symbol that's in front of you. So it is really, um, I guess you would say, sort of transgressive in that way and very, I mean, almost ephemeral. For a, for a big, heavy, wooden, carved sculpture to, to come across as ephemeral is a real feat. So it's sort of littered with these petals, like fake petals, but white petals uh, over this kind of seated winged horse. Um, and you can read about the background of this. It's very poetic. Uh, you know, it relates to the Muslim world and um, Persia, and myth, uh, the doctrine of mythology. And, you know, in the same way as lots of icons from mythology tell a story, I think I like the way that his work ties that sort of mythology into art mythology and blends the two together. So... And then in the back room of that front space, there's this beautiful work of a snake, which is the more contemporary work of Abdul Rahman's in the in the suite. And that's from 2023, so that's just finished. And I think he spoke about that on air. It's a black snake, um, and it is both... I mean, I found it both alluring and terrifying. So snakes, I think, have this really powerful presence in our human psyche where they are both fascinating but then they scare the shit out of... I mean, they don't find many people that don't see a snake and their hairs don't rise on the back of their neck. But this snake has pearl eyes, which I found very alluring. I found myself, like, kneeling down in front of it and staring into its eyes. And it has a chandelier that's hung very low above the snake. So it's quite kind of brooding and it's a darkened room. I really loved this work. It's called I Am Your Treasure. Um, and yeah, and the meaning behind it too, it's worth going and having a little think about what it means. Uh, I'll leave that to you, the viewer, because uh, it's quite personal in the way that a lot of mythology can be uh, deciphered on a personal level, which I think is its power and the same as religion, you know. You can read it for your own goods, you know, for, for your life. Um, and that, yeah, that was the three works by Abdul Rahman and I really loved them. And then you walk through kind of across the, what do you call it? hallway I guess to Nell's work and Nell's major work as you walk in is kind of this it's like I guess you would call it a procession of objects it's a big life-size um, figure which I think is based on the artist so the big figure is called a white bird that flies in the mist a black bird flies in the night a woman walks wild and free she is not afraid to die so she's a blackened kind of woman, which I assume is based on the artist, uh, with a kind of staff, like a carved white staff and white eyes. Um, so, you know, it speaks of not, not humanly, you know, maybe, a, maybe death, I guess you could read that, but especially with the title. But then she is followed by this little flock of um, ghosts, glass, sort of hand-blown ghosts, which has become a motif of Nell's. Um, and they sort of speak of like either lost lives or lost opportunities or they're these little clear ghost things that, that are also highly collectible. So it's one of those things where an artist manages to do something that is conceptually quite ethereal and emotional and powerful and yet within that could sell each of them for a nice profit. So that's a, that is a mean feat as a contemporary artist and I think Nell is one of those people that has done that really well. So this is a flock of ghosts following this kind of figure. But then actually not, it's not actually the work that I liked the most. Her, the one that I liked the most out of her suite 
it was a quieter work, I guess you would say, and I'd never really seen anything like this from Nell before. It's like you walk through the main space and into like a little antechamber room. If you know Linden, you'll know the room. Like I remember installing work in there. It's this weird little, almost like a little cupboard that's between the two rooms. It's tiny and it's got a door either side. It's very small. And in there is just this massive shell, like I can't remember what, clamshell? I think it's like a sound, yeah, giant clamshell, which now are worth a fortune actually. I saw them on Leonard Joel the other day. They're, they're worth a lot of money because cl giant clams are endangered now. Okay. So those big ones that in the 70s, you know, people used to have as basins or have their soap in or whatever, now they're very hard to find. Anyway, there's a giant clamshell, but then there's like this kind of arrangement where she's got a walking stick, which is like this kind of really beautiful hand-carved knobbly walking stick coming out of it and in the bottom of the shell this egg like a golden egg which I think symbolically the the weight of Nell's objects are getting more and more sort of poetic and at the same time um, like you want them you know coveted there's something very powerfully deep and emotional about Nell's work so it's like this heavy it's a gold plated bronze egg sitting in so you can tell it's heavy just by looking at it you know anyway this is like a little quiet moment but I loved this work and it was called uh, a line of poetry so I think all of especially Abdul Rahman's and Nell's shows are very poetic in that they are objects standing in for what could be a story or a myth or a personal journey which I love that type of work it's not for everyone but definitely for me and as you say well curated because these yeah. are both artists working with a sculptural practice yeah. uh, in a a really kind of refined and rarefied way and placed in Responding to the space, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very well curated. It's very good. And then the third part of Nell's work, I mean, on that as well, incredibly site-specific in that it's this big sort of tree which it's called On a Withered Tree Ghosts Bloom and it's a stainless steel tree that is quite roughly welded together. You can see the joins and then all her little ghosty things kind of hanging off that. But what I love about this work is it's been installed through the floorboards, so there's like a trap door, which if you have installed in Linden, you'd know about this thing in the floor that, I don't know, I guess they used to store stuff in there when it was a house or was just to get to the footings or whatever, but it's one of those square manholes in the floor. And so she's opened up the manhole and the tree's roots actually come from underneath and then the tree comes up and only just reaches the ceiling. So it makes you think a lot about how you interact with the space, but you know, maybe go through the walls or through the floor and how that really starts this other story of what might grow up out of an old house or, you know, what that stands in for memories or trauma or growth, you know. It's what a, it was built upon. Yeah, it's a really powerful work. So it sort of, it doesn't suspend belief completely, but it definitely pushes your brain to start thinking, oh, like a tree coming out of the floor, what does that mean? You know, how rooted are we in, in our spaces? Um, yeah, so that work... Hugely successful set of of um, of installations, I guess you would say. They, they're sort of conjoined but separate. And then upstairs, so you go back out to the sort of front desk. Do not miss this work if you go. Don't just see the downstairs. Make sure you go upstairs. Um, up the stairs, there is a room. And first of all, you encounter kind of like this circle of chairs, which is actually uh, a knitting circle that Kate just runs as part of the show. And forgive me, I don't know the date she's running this, but if you get online, you'll be able to see that if you're a knitter. But then Kate Just's work is made via knitting. So one of her main um, materials or processes is knitting. And she's been doing this for years and years. I actually went to art school with Kate 
uh, many years ago, and she was knitting way back then. So she's definitely a, an established knitter now, but in a contemporary art context. So it's great. Uh, it's very laborious, and I think at the same time it's very therapeutic. So this work, I feel like, is one of the most successful expressions of Kate's ethos um, to date because it is, it's called Self-Care Action Series. And so Kate's always been very political in her work. So she's very much about, um, you know, what she believes in. All her work has sort of its roots in radical activism, which I really admire in Kate. So she's, she, she doesn't, you know, it's not fluff. It's never fluff. It's always like she really believes in what she's making work about. And that's really important. It's not just about selling it and making money. It's actually about contributing to a cause or a movement. And Kate's been one of those artists that has never put down her tools in that respect she's always contributing to a cause um, and this cause is quite interesting because it's like it's about the sustenance or the care for oneself and I think that we know now is a very political action in itself so if you're working in the arts like yourself Richard we were just talking about how sometimes it's important if you're feeling sick you need to say hey I can't do the show or I can't you know that there's something about maintaining your own um, health and safety that contributes to the greater good of your community and so this work is about that so it's, it's 40 panels of brightly colored uh, knitted canvas size or you know what do you call it rectangular panels and each of them has a self-care action knitted in as text so she sort of knitted these they're, they're quite graphic they're all different colors and they say things like switch off your phone these are some of my favorites switch off your phone uh, get into nature Feel your feelings. I love feel your feelings. I'd love that one in my house. I actually found myself looking at them going, oh, I'd love to live with that one. Like wake up every morning and go, oh, yeah, feel your feelings. Remember. But my favorite is pat an animal as self-care. Uh, and, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Like if you go, have a look at the room shape because she does talk about how all of these um, self-care actions relate back to, you know, the women's rights movement of the 60s and 70s. Um, and yeah, activist activist intentions, optimism, which I think is something that you know we could do with a lot more of in art. But it also, like, I think she started because Kate also teaches, so she started doing this in relation to arts workers and artists looking after themselves. But then she talks about how through COVID and through life, she had a really difficult few years. So she, she lost her father, she entered menopause, she adopted a teenager, um, and really like a conflation of really difficult life events she found herself making work to actually support herself as well and I think as an artist we do need to remember that we have this amazing resource um, to help ourselves get through hard times you know we can use our work and Kate definitely is a shining example of how how to do that with your work so go have a look uh, Kate is all of these exhibitions are on until the 4th of June. So the three of yep. them all finish on the 4th of June. Yep. Um, Not that far away. Oh, Quite a while. A month and a bit away. Yeah. So uh, the, the Knitting Circle with Kate Just is oh. on the 20th of May. I think you need to register for that, yeah. Yeah, from 11.30am to 1pm. There's also an Artist Talk with Nell, I believe. Ooh. Uh, which That'd is be good. happening on Tuesday the 4th of June, 1pm to 2pm. Uh, and the exhibition uh, of Abdul Rahman Abdullah's work, Journeys, also closing on the 4th of June. And all of these exhibitions are on at Linden 
New Art, 26 Ackland Street, St Kilda, lindenart.org for details. Yeah, and um, I do not know who... Uh, I think Nell's represented by Station and Kate is represented by Hugo Michel. Um, not sure about Ab- Abdul Rahman, sorry. I should know that, but I don't. But all of these works, you know, these are commercial artists also, so if you're a collector, go and have a look, but you don't buy things through Linden, you go to their galleries. But particularly Kate's, I mean, I think they're highly collectible works I definitely would love one uh, but yes that is that is my wrap lovely thank mm. you Ty and I feel like I had something else to talk about like to plug and now it's completely lost left my if you remember after you leave the station yeah oh no I know what it was but I'm going to maybe update it in two weeks when it's actually happening but keep an eye out for West Base is having a 30 year um Fundraiser. They've been around for 30 years, and Westbase is one of the most important artist-run spaces now, based at um, Collingwood Yards. Um, I'm going to be part of that as well. But a lot of really amazing artists that we've talked about over the years will be donating a work to uh, raise money to keep Westbase going. So maybe follow them on Instagram or check out their Instagram page, and you'll get updates there. But you can register to get a catalogue and buy a piece of art, support the gallery. I think these are really important things to to keep the community alive. Yeah. Sounds good. Time, we'll catch you in a fortnight. See you then. Triple R. Hello, this is Edna, and this is Smart Arts with Richard Watts. That was Dame Edna, a.k.a. the late Barry Humphreys, recorded here at the station in 2006 when I interviewed Dame Edna about a, a 50th anniversary tour that was taking place. Barry Humphreys died on the weekend, leaving behind a complicated legacy. On the one hand, a rich history of groundbreaking comedy that forged paths for Australian artists overseas. On the other hand, more recently, some frankly deeply unpleasant comments about the trans community. It's also come to light that he uh, wrote an introduction to a book about his friend, the pedophile artist uh, Donald Friend, in which uh, Humphreys talked about Friend's, quote, benevolent form of pedophilia, unquote. These are issues which complicate the legacy and I guess complicate the relationship that the Melbourne International Comedy Festival has or had with Barry Humphreys as well. Susan Proven is the director of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and joins me in the studio. Susan, it feels a bit of a shame that the festival's closing weekend and the celebration of this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival award-winning artists were somewhat overshadowed by Humphreys' death. It seems to have his death in a lot of quarters seems to have become very fixated on the festival. Yes, that's right. It's it's very it's it's weird. Um, Barry died on Saturday, sort of like within the 24 hours of the closing of the comedy festival, and we, like everybody all over the world involved in the arts, posted a tribute to him on our social media, on our website. Um, but clearly, it was not enough for some people. Uh, and while we were very engrossed and focused on delivering those last sort of 300, 400 performances in the last 24 hours of the festival, these, uh, driven by, I don't know, a little bit of media, I guess, just suddenly Barry's death, sadly, became all about the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which is weird and sad and really, really inappropriate because... 
actually it's a time to think about the good, not the bad. <laughs> mm. the, uh, and also the, the comedy festival was a... a small part of his life he there, mm. there is a myth floating around and i've even seen it quoted mm. in a in an article on the abc mm. news page that he was somehow involved with founding the festival now as far as i'm aware that's not the case john pinder was one of the the the, the forces behind the festival mm. and a number of other independent comedy that's right. producers that's right a number of um the festival was the brainchild and created and um driven by a bunch of um melbourne venue operators and comedy producers with John Pinder and Roger Evans from The Last Laugh and Greg Hocking and um, Tim Woods from the Universal Theatre and a, a variety, you know, Rod Quantock was on the first board um, and led by um, John Pinder, who was kind of the, the driving force, I guess, but they, they were the creators, the founders, the <clears throat> investors, all of that. Um, and Barry was... Uh, instrumental in those first couple of um, that first festival by agreeing to be a special guest artist and he and Peter Cook did an utterly memorable media launch for the festival which has kind of gone down in history. I think that's why people assume that he was actually one of the creators when in fact he was a very a, a hugely revered and everyone was very excited about having him and Peter Cook there at the beginning and there's no doubt that their contribution really put the festival raised the profile of the festival and it was really important then. And then he was around um, during our 30th... I mean, in the subsequent years, he did, I, I guess, lots of tours of Australia that we had absolutely no involvement in whatsoever. Um, he was around in Australia during our 30th anniversary and he did come and um, was at our awards ceremony and he took part in the... He moderated the great debate and it was really lovely to have him there for that. But, but yes, in the context of Barry's whole career and surely his whole Australian career, we are a tiny, tiny, tiny part, but um, somehow we've become the focus of this massive thing which is um you know it's a bit sad really mm. um a lot of the the anger online has been driven by the what was the barry award That's for the right. most outstanding yeah. show in the festival being renamed yeah and that was controversial we did that four years ago so in many ways it's we went through all of this four years ago it's old news and now it's like oh my god it's going through it all over again ah um but yes, we we did take the decision to rename the award four years ago, and it was largely um, because of the uh, things that you mentioned in your introduction there about the, his um, really horrible comments about um, the transgender community and other things. And and it was with a festival such as ours, which is very much driven by artists. It's it's. Um, uh, the artists and local producers, etc., who risk all their money to participate in the festival, put on the festival, etc. And there's no point having an award if no one wants to be a part of that award. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, and and we renamed it because we wanted our award to reflect the um, inclusiveness and diversity of of our festival community. And yeah, it was controversial at the time. I had many email exchanges with Barry over that event that that thing and um we all moved on uh but of course driven i think by some of his friends or 
now when you know a lot of people are hurting, it's exploded again. Which yeah, is including uh, an old tweet of Hannah Gadsby's from four mm. or five years ago being yes. retweeted as if it was brand new, as yeah, if it's... she was saying it, uh, kind of hurtful things right here and now. Yeah, um, it's really it's it's crazy. It's it's not the time, as I said, that it's old news. We all moved on. There were very good reasons for doing that when when we did, um, and none of us backtrack from that at all uh, and you know Barry was controversial and provocative he knew exactly what he was saying when he said it I think I suspect he had a much thicker skin than what people are giving him credit for now and yeah it's just it's it's really weird that it has blown up into this whole thing with, with the comedy festival when there is so much more of his career and art and legacy to be talked about and instead all people are talking about is this one thing crazy let's talk about his career and his art mm. because uh i have conflicted feelings about mm. barry humphreys as well when i interviewed him in 2006 it was before he made comments about the uh transgender mm. community and and um uh and so forth but I grew up uh, with parents who adored his work. Mm. I listened to it on 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 uh, on vinyl. I didn't call it vinyl back then. It was just, a, <laughs> just on the record, record. player. Um, but looking back, kind of the, his his death has meant the opportunity to reflect on decades of of work. Um, let's talk about how significant he was as a comedian for, mm. because I guess for a current generation who may only know him perhaps because of some of the, the, the more recent things he said, why was he such a, a, a significant figure in the Australian comedy world in the 50s, 60s, 70s and into the 80s? I think probably because what he was doing no one else was doing or had done at that time um, him wound up Australians and made them laugh at them Themselves. You know, he took the piss in a enormous fashion, um, and he took as an Australian performer and representing an Australian culture, if you like, or as Australian characters. He took that global, and no one, certainly in comedy, had really had done that before. So he he was the first really glo global Australian comedian, and. You know, as we know, he wound up spending most of his time overseas. Subsequently, not living in Australia, and um, but he was hugely successful in that regard. And so, I think that that is significant for um, the Australian cultural legacy. Yeah, and as you say, he, he taught Australians to laugh at themselves. Mm. I mean, there's always been a slight undercurrent of cruelty in some of yeah. Barry's humour, and particularly yeah. Dame Edna's humour, mm. for example, mm. uh, in that way of uh, mocking an audience as mm. much as uh, anything else. But uh, at the same, given the 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 world he was pushing against in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, for example, when the cultural cringe was alive and mm. well, the 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 world that he was reacting against. Uh, deserved to be mocked as well absolutely and he did it in spades and he was fearless and with what he challenged and mocked and provoked and that's what's interesting now that there is a new generation of people doing mocking provoking <laughs> different things including barry and his generation and it's um Yeah, I think uh, it, it, it's 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 all weird that all these all these people who are going don't 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 be rude about them. And I'm thinking the people who are have been cross and who are provoking back 
are doing exactly what he did um, all the, you know over over the course of his career but particularly as a when as a young starting out when he was you know such an iconoclast because there wasn't anyone else doing what what he did at some um, you can always say, well, they've been inspired by Barry. Leave them alive. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of. Um, I guess they're they're responding to what they see as uh, an authority or mm. the authority and reacting against it and yeah. kicking against it and trying to undermine the foundations in the same way mm. he absolutely pilloried middle class values yeah. in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's interesting. A lot of a lot of the keyboard warriors we've been um, looking at. <laughs> the last few days, some of the stuff I read, and I just think, you've got no idea. Have you ever actually been to the comedy festival? You, I did wonder actually that. Set foot in it. You don't. The way you're talking, you. I don't know. It's just some of the things that people said. They 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 actually have no idea of what the environment actually is because you know people saying things like they should have turned out the lights and filled the venue with gladioli. The venue. How many there's hundreds of comedy festival venues, and what on Sunday we were all going to race around and buy up every gladiola in Melbourne, and suddenly de- I mean, yeah. Anyway, um, just some weird stuff there with people um, who, yes, I understand they they were big fans of Barry, and that's totally understandable and to be admired. But um, to put stuff on a on a festival that they clearly aren't engaged with is just weird. I agree. Very <laughs> odd. I was reading some of those comments thinking, I bet you don't even come to the festival. That was certainly the impression mm. they were giving me. Mm. Susan, uh, what will the comedy festival do now in terms of acknowledging Barry Humphrey's legacy? Will we're, we're going to consult. It's To be honest, we are... You know, it's tricky because anything that we do won't be will not be right. <laughs> Probably, there'll be people who think that whatever we do is either too much or too little. Um, so, but you know, our our plan is to talk to as many people as we possibly can and see what people think, see what people would like to do to acknowledge his legacy and you know what would be what would be the right thing that that maintains our commitment to um supporting our very wide community um but also says something about what barry contributed yeah. early on uh it's certainly going to be a delicate balancing act whatever you mm. do because as you say there will, there will be some people who will see any form of acknowledgement as I don't know, uh, giving in to the yeah. to the right wing and the the mm. anti-trans brigade mm. uh, and vice versa. Yeah. So as you say, consultation and hopefully calm and reasonable consultation rather yeah. than furious people hammering the keyboard. Yeah, we'll consult with the people who actually make the festival, the people who are really involved in the festival because they're the ones that matter really in the end. <laughs> and really, I just want to say too that it, we've found this whole thing really distressing because as I said on Saturday night we posted a tribute so much of the media have said claimed that we did nothing we were we were out there in the same way that everybody else was um, and then this complete bin fire focusing everything on the comedy festival I just think it's just awful and um, how must his family be feeling that that his whole legacy and everything has been turned into this shitstorm with the Melbourne Comedy Festival. It's just totally inappropriate and wrong and um, distressing. 
for everyone. <laughs> and my commiserations to you and the rest of the festival team uh, who have to kind of put up with it as well. That must be pretty draining. Yeah. We've had lots of lovely messages, though, from, and, of course, so many artists who are absolutely... Um, who were behind the various decisions and who absolutely stand by it and who are... Well, there's a great piece by Sammy J in The Age. Just, Sammy uh, J's piece was fantastic. It was so well written. I was thinking, oh, I wish, he, I, wish I could have written something <laughs> like that. It was perfect. Yeah. So if people haven't read that, I definitely recommend reading Sammy yes. J's piece, which is called I Owe Barry, I Won a Barry, and I Was on the Board When We Voted to Remove mm. the Barry. It's a really kind of uh, intelligent, articulate... Kind Nuanced. Of, yeah, nuanced yeah. take on the whole situation. So mm. definitely recommend reading that. Uh, and, of course, the comedy festival continues now. Even though the festival itself is over, you've got road shows The road ahead. show. We were in Townsville last night. We're in Bays... Oh, I might be getting this wrong. We're in... I think it's Bayswater or somewhere out of Melbourne tonight. Yes, it's, it's, it is non-stop. We are all over Australia for the next two and a half months. So... All happening. In many ways, the festival <laughs> is just the tip of the iceberg and the rest of the work goes on all year round. Susan Proven, thanks for coming in and chatting to us about the complicated legacy of Barry Humphreys. Thank you for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Time for us to return to talking about visual art now. Kind of a uh, few more exhibitions to discuss and artists to converse with, especially now that the comedy festival is over. The last three or four weeks, the show was very performance heavy, so trying to uh, balance things out a little bit. Uh, my next guest has joined us in the studio. Diego Ramirez is here to talk about an exhibition at Mars Gallery in Windsor called Vampires on Earth. Diego, welcome to Triple R. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. My very great pleasure. Now, you're more than just an artist. You're a facilitator, a writer, and you're also involved in running an art space yourself as well. Yes. Yes, Seventh Gallery. Um, I've been very fortunate to be involved in different aspects of the art world. So it is often a source material for me to um, be exposed to different areas of this infrastructure. Where do you find the time doing all of the other stuff to focus on your art practice? Well, I'm actually descaling because I am not as young as I used to, and now I actually feel pain in my body. Like, <laughs> like my knee is hurting, my neck is hurting. Like, if I don't sleep well enough now, I really can feel it. So <laughs> I don't know if I can do it as much anymore. Yeah. Oh, well. well, hopefully if that means pulling back on some other projects, more focus on your art so we get to see more of your work. Exactly. The, uh, the current exhibition, Vampires on Earth, you've explored the idea of vampires a few times in your practice to date, not just in this current exhibition. What is the fascination for you? What do vampires represent for you as a, as a creative metaphor? Yeah, well, vampires are very rich symbols um, that mean many different things to many different people and have meant also different things to me. So I have looked at vampires through a postcolonial lens, through the lens of capitalism, um, even as a metaphor for eating disorders. So they're actually quite broad. Uh, for this exhibition, I'm looking at um, vampires as an entity in capitalism, so how we speak to each other, um, say on social media, how we devour the resources of the earth. 
um, but also emotional vampirism, so how some people are so exhausting to talk to. <laughs> now, the I guess in particular, the, the vampire as capitalism metaphor is an interesting one to, to unpick a little bit more. In, I don't know, if you look at uh, vampire mythology in the 19th century, for example, yes, you've got these rich, decadent aristocrats who are literally draining the blood of the workers, for example. Absolutely. Now you have corporations that are draining the blood of the workers, sometimes literally, and simultaneously draining the planet of wealth and resources. So... Uh, corporate uh, vampires perhaps the one of the key uh, themes you're exploring in this exhibition yeah no absolutely and it's really interesting because you have people complaining about these corporate vampires in a way that makes these vampires bigger you know like if you complain about them on social media what you're doing is just increasing the resources because that's what they feed off you know like we use these um, billionaire platforms to complain about the billionaire platforms. <laughs> it's like completely absurd. Um, um, yeah, especially that sort of care lingo of social media I find quite um, hilarious because it's so stock and generic to the point that it has become um, performative in a comedic way. Um, so it's sort of the world doesn't really make sense, does it? <laughs> now, in terms of kind of focusing in on vampires of the earth particularly, uh, you're from Mexico originally, and I know uh, what a, uh, a petroleum company fire in the Gulf of Mexico was yes. one of the, 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 the key spurs or uh, influences on shaping this particular body of work. Yes, yeah, so, um, they had a gas pipe that exploded um, in 2021. Um, someone sent me a message checking in on me, and they weren't really checking in on me because of the petroleum company, but it was around the same time. And so as an anecdotal episode, I thought it was quite hilarious that you know we reached this point of um, hollow <laughs> checking in on each other that someone would do it for something that doesn't make sense, like a petroleum company <laughs> having a, an explosion in Mexico. Um, so all of the works, so all of the works have text and images that are framed with what appears to be dipping oil to create the impression that I dip um, generic thoughts and feelings into a bucket of oil, so to speak, like crude oil. So it's like black and dripping. Yeah, which could also be seen as uh, dripping blood, of course. Exactly, yeah, or dripping tears, yeah. yeah. Now, often the works are paired uh, yes. uh, as if they are reflections of one another, which is intriguing because vampires traditionally don't have reflections. Talk to us about the pairing of the work and why, you, why you've played with that. Yeah, well, it's the most basic form of communication, right? Like, so to communicate, you need one more entity. So it was to establish this um, model of miscommunication between two entities, which goes back to the anecdote of someone checking in on me. Um, yeah, vampires don't have a reflection, but they see each other, they see themselves in each other, so they come to understand what they are by interacting with another vampire. Uh, now, some of the works uh, in the exhibition literally uh, seem to be playing with that uh, almost mirror-like motif. Um, 
uh, gentrified language stained with capital like blood in a vampire's teeth number 68. You've got these two kind of black frames that could be picture frames, could be mirrors, but are literally soaked in what appears to be bitumen or oil or something like that. So uh, kind of overtly referencing the mirror, but also closing off any hint of reflection there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's also about, you know, it's very easy to point fingers and make fun of other people, but then to reflect on ourselves, that is actually the challenging part. And ultimately, this mirror motif um, invites us to do that, to think about the way that we behave or the way that we interact with these um, ideas or platforms or mediums or language. Um, so I hope that a viewer by seeing themselves in a mirror was like, oh yeah, well, I use oil all the time and I can be so fractious about other people that use oil because I am part of the system, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, well, the fact that uh, uh, plastics in our clothes are made of oil, for example, or byproducts thereof, yeah, we're, we're all kind of playing a part, unfortunately, whether yeah. you like it or not. And why the use of text? What is it about text that appeals to you so much? Well, I because I'm a writer, I spent so much time writing that <laughs> text became quite abstract. So I was looking at text all the time, and I was like, oh, well, this is like material. Um, and it goes back to that idea of language and how... Uh, you know, words are the most basic things that we use to connect with each other and how we can use such a complex mechanism in such an awful, simple and generic way. So <laughs> something that is quite beautiful, we turn it into this flat, like meaningless thing that we say to each other. Well, the uh, the fact that some of the works are quoting what would seem to be BuzzFeed-style articles. Exactly. Uh, five <laughs> uncomfortable signs you're becoming the person you're destined to be. Or um, So, yeah, the that notion of, as you say, the, the, the way that language, which has so much richness and potential for communication, can be, can be drained of meaning. Exactly, yeah. And that, that BuzzFeed era, like, I found it quite... Um, I mean, I dare to say influential because um, it's the the trashiest form of journalism, right? Like, ten reasons why the new Aladdin movie is problematic. You know? <laughs> like, it's so generic. Now, in terms of your practice as an artist generally, you began working much more with video and the moving image, I believe. Uh, I do. Yeah. Talk why the transition away from video to, towards, uh, as we've discussed, uh, paired images, text-based work, uh, this, these vampiric uh, and uh, oil company references. Why? Talk, talk us through what changed in, in you or your practice to move away from video. Well, I... The real answer is, I don't know. Um, so I still make videos sometimes, but it, I really just stopped making it. Um, um, it stopped communicating to me in the same way. So, but it could, I have to say, if we live in a world that is saturated with video and moving image and the digital, the physical then becomes more interesting. So say I really went back to handwriting. So a lot of my work features handwriting because I got so fucking tired of the phone and, you know, writing on the computer. So maybe it's just this reversal, like just trying to enjoy a different aspect of life. That certainly makes sense, given that, as you say, we are we are saturated with videos every so often in our lives, whether it's uh, 
advertising at train platforms or uh, little 15 second clips on our phones, whatever it may be. But yeah, um, I can imagine that that would make uh, the creation of meaningful video art more of a challenge. It is, and and you know, as I say, I st say I have a video on right now um, on a screening at Melbourne now, so I still make video. I just don't make it as often as I used to. So it went from being my primary medium to being secondary. But honestly, I think that's a good reason. Like it's we're just so saturated by it. Yeah, and. You're also with this current exhibition, uh, Vampires of the Earth at Mars Gallery, uh, looking at the, uh, you, you've mentioned the use of text, for example, on the images. In one case, you're using text on the floor. I am. <laughs> so it's like these, uh, it's two gasoline nozzles, um, and they're spelling the very stereotypical phrase, light my fire. <laughs> And they, um, you know, it's like these two guys nozzles talking to each other. And the funny thing, on my way to the exhibition, I rented this van, and I had to put gas in the van, and he, like, spat gasoline at me. So <laughs> I was actually truly flammable during install. Yeah, <laughs> very serendipitous. <laughs> Diego Ramirez's exhibition, Vampires of the Earth, is showing uh, until the... Well, it opens tonight, I believe, uh, and runs through until the 20th of May Correct. at Mars Gallery, which is located at 7 James Street, Windsor, open from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tuesdays to Saturdays. And you can find out more information uh, at the gallery website, which is just marsgallery.com.au. And if you'd like to learn more about Diego and his practice more generally, diego-ramirez.net. Now, Diego, you mentioned the video work that is showing in Melbourne now at the moment. Obviously, we've, we're focused on uh, vampires, uh, the current exhibition at Mars, but talk to us a little bit about the video work in case people are intrigued and want to head off to Melbourne now to check it out. Yes, yeah, so it's actually quite closely related. Um, it, I took a video, so I bought a film from a Catholic bookshop about a Marian apparition, so the apparition of the Virgin Mary in the 16th century, and I replaced every scene where the Virgin Mary appeared with a black dripping void that resembles um, petroleum. So, and it's called um, The Perfect Ever or How Humans, <clears throat> how humans Discovered Oil, uh, How Oil Discovered Humans. So it is about this worship to um, petroleum that really has marked human history. Um, and it's very uncanny, um, supernatural. So, it is actually quite closely related. And am I right in thinking that, that both that video work and the works in Vampires of the Earth at Mars Gallery are all part of a larger body of work, a connected series? Yeah, they are. Um, so especially Vampires of the Earth, um, I've been looking at monsters for, well, my whole practice. Um, um, it's, it's about looking at the meaningfulness of monsters in contemporary culture. And there's this academic branch that um, is dedicated to that. So even though I hate like academic speech, I take a lot of influence from that. <laughs> so as I said, if people want to learn more about Diego's practice and body of work, diego-ramirez.net uh, and the current exhibition, Vampires of the Earth, opening today and running through until the 20th of May at Mars Gallery, 7 James Street, Windsor. Uh, 
10am to 4pm Tuesdays to Saturday and marsgallery.com.au for details. Diego Ramirez, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thanks to you, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Ah, that's right, Triple R. Let's talk about what's happening at Red Stitch Actors Theatre, where the play Selling Kabul is now showing until the 21st of May. One of the Red Stitch Ensemble members uh, is with me in the studio to talk about the play. He's also, understandably, uh, acting in (laughs) Selling Kabul. Uh, Kishro Jones-Shukur, welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much, Richard. Now... I've heard a little bit about this play and uh, am intrigued to hear about it directly from you. Mm. It was, what, nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama. It was a finalist, so that all automatically says it's held in high regard. Mm. Mm. Yes, which it, the writing in it is brilliant. It's fantastic. It keeps you at the edge of your seat. Um, and it's, you know, about a place and people that, aren't really seen in, in, on the stages in Australia. Um, it's a story about a young man in Afghanistan who interprets for the Americans and then thus is ta- um, targeted by the, the Taliban. And his sister is, is hiding him in his apartment on the day that uh, his wife is giving birth to their new son. And this play is all done in real time. And things just unfold as the Taliban draw closer and closer. So it's quite the thrilling ride. It sounds like it. And also equally something that can be easily staged at Red Stitch because it's all set in the one apartment. Very much so. Very much so. It's a cute little Afghan apartment and they've done... um, Sophie Woodward, our, our set designer, has done quite the magnificent job in getting the accuracy right. My... My mother and my grandma um, came last night, and I asked them, "So, was it? What did you think? Was it? Did it look like it was in Afghanistan?" And they're like, "Yes! Oh my God! It's fantastic! Oh, that's <laughs> the right kind of approval." That's what you want. <laughs> yeah. Now, when did you first hear about this play? And is it something that you brought to the ensemble, for example? Because I know the way programming works at Red Stitch is, yes, there's an artistic director, but lots of people come in saying, "How about this one?" And there's lots of discussion and back and forth and talking. Our artistic director, Ella Caldwell, um, last year put it forward um, for our season uh, this year. I didn't know about it until then. And Red Stitch is just very, very good at finding great plays from around the world. And Ella thought that, well, me, because I'm I'm of Afghan background, um, that it could be suitable, read the play, the ensemble read the play, thought it was brilliant and just had to put it on. Yeah. And as you said earlier, it's uh, showing us uh, a situation and showing us characters we 
rarely see on, certainly in main stage theatre. Very much so. Not even uh, in kind of more commercial cinema, for example, which has an, an even wider reach in some ways. Mm. Uh, because often if we do see uh, characters from Afghanistan, uh, they're the minor characters supporting the, the white hero, for example. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Uh, or they're the villains, or, or very much cast in stereotyped roles. Very much Here so. we have a, a tense family situation uh, a sister doing a favour for a brother, mm. a wife off stage, readying to give birth. If he leaves the the apartment to go to the birth of his child, he risks exposing himself and the rest of his family to the mm. Taliban. Yes, yes, um, yeah. It's it's very much focused on these people and their own humanity, and that we're actually all the same. We're more than just you know this stereotypical. Middle Eastern person with with an accent, always part of some kind of extremist group, um, or however we're seen in that kind of Western paradigm. Um, so it's very very refreshing, and I you know I just can't help but feel hope for Australia and our stages that we're we're, we're heading in a great direction. That I'm rep being represented on stage, and other Afghans are coming in, going, oh that's that's my that's my family. But also, you know, European people coming and going, that's my family. Oh, that's my family as well. It's brilliant. It sounds like uh, in terms of the dramatic structure of the play, obviously we don't want to kind of give oh. any details away. Please come see it. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds uh, potentially really bloody tense. I can imagine Ooh, the tension yeah. ratcheting up kind, Ooh, of, yeah. kind of minute by minute as the play unfolds. Um, I can definitely attest to that. We've had preview audiences in, um, and our opening night was last night, and some of the some of the feedback was I was at the edge of my seat. I didn't know what to expect, and yeah, without giving too much away, it's it all unfolds pretty quickly and unravels pretty quickly. And I would say for people who are coming to this, just emotionally prepare yourself. That's all, I, that's all I want to say. Kisra, tell us about your character. Tarun. Tarun. He is... I hope that wasn't too loud into the microphone. Um, he is, 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 is a young man. He's an Afghan man who um, is, has interpreted for the Americans. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not sure if you know about the, um, the, the Helmon province campaign that the UK and America and some Dutch... Um, armies were a part of. They tr in the south of, of Afghanistan, the Helmand province was a, a Taliban stronghold, and there was uh, most of the fighting was done down there in between 2006 and 2013. And uh, the Americans and UK would hire interpreters to to uh, help them in the battle, talk to <coughs> uh, the people in Helmand. Um, and Tarun was one of those interpreters um, with the uh, influence of his mother and his wife um, that wanted more for Af Afghanistan than, you know, fundamentalist <laughs> regimes. Um, so he went, he interpreted for the Americans, and he felt proud that he was doing something to get his country moving forward. But of course, the Americans the, then yep. and go. They're like, "See you later. You're on your own." And because of that, um, he's had to go in hiding, and the Taliban's power grew. And 
he is he has been more or less in lockdown <laughs> for four months in his sister's apartment for four months and around the four month mark his um his new child is due and the play that's where the play starts for old Tarun and he, he his aim is to get out of Afghanistan and get to America with with his friend Jeff who he fought arm in arm with um as a kind of war brother and yeah now i know the playwright who wrote this is based in uh in new york yes and so i would imagine that for some american audiences the the realization that their troops had abandoned people and Mm. uh left them at the mercy of the taliban uh must have been quite confronting for Mm. some audiences even in the uk as well um there was a story uh Around that time, I can't, I can't remember what uh, newspaper article it came from, but people who were waiting for their visas who worked both for the UK and the Amer- and, and, and America um, felt abandoned. Some made it through, some got visas, but some didn't. And there was this particular story from uh, an interpreter that made it to the UK, got his family there, but there was this video that turned up of the Taliban capturing interpreters and beheading them right in front of the camera. And it's devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, And this interpreter who made it in the UK saw this video and recognised these two men as his friends. Um, You know, and there are still interpreters now, people who work for the, for the, for America, for the UK, that are still waiting. for Australia, I suppose. For Australia as well, well, yeah. So I'm not too sure of those facts but I'm sure there is I'm sure there are people still there waiting to get out um, because of the of of the work that they've done um, for Western countries is the purpose of a play like this in some ways to not to preach to an audience Mm. but to ask them to empathize with people who they may see as as other as foreign as uh, they don't have any right to come to my country is this a, a the way that drama can teach empathy oh i you've put it so delicately that was beautiful i think i think so richard part of it anyway um also to illuminate that these things are actually happening to people or have happened to people um and that's why they're here um <clears throat> This play is set in 2013, um, so it happened, uh, you know, a decade ago, and yeah, I, I believe so. I believe that it is one of its main functions is to is to relate to these people, to to see that actually we have much more in common than we are different. Um, while at the same time serving to tell a taught dramatic and presumably entertaining story at times yeah (laughs) at times entertaining indeed (laughs) yes indeed given we've talked about how the 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 tension ratcheting up across the course of the play yes um i imagine nonetheless there are moments of humor moments of uh of of family drama (laughs) (laughs) yes um the Particularly the relationship between Afia and Tarun, who are brother and sister at the start of the play, you kind of really see that sibling kind of uh, relationship there and um, almost the 
infantilization of Tarun in front of Afya and how, you know, he's kind of being handled because all he wants to do is go see his wife and his child. But, of course, Afya is like, no, it's too dangerous. Sit down, eat your cookie, that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> I know what big sisters are like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. I have three older sisters. <laughs> now, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the other uh, cast and the creative team of this production of Selling Kabul at Red Stitch. <clears throat> Ah, the beautiful cast and creative team. We have uh, Afia, played by Nicole Naboo, plays my sister. Um, Claudia Greenstone, who plays Leila, and and Farad Zaywala, who plays Jawid. Um, beautiful actors, beautiful people. Our director Brett Cousins has been approaching this with absolute grace and sensitivity. Um, we also have a, an equity. Um, uh, I think office is the wrong word, but someone who's there to make sure <coughs> we're all doing this safe and, it's, and we're supported. It's brilliant. Um, our stage mummages, I like to call them rather than managers, because Kelly and Jenny really look after us and are very organised to make sure we, we are on time. Um, and our creative team, Grace and, and Sophie and and um, and Richard have just really brought the, the play to, to life. It's It's been so great to work with them. When you're performing a play like this, sometimes at Red Stitch there is the opportunity to work directly with the writer on a brand new Australian production, for example. This is an established script from uh, an American playwright. Have you had any direct contact or communication uh, with Sylvia Curry about the work? I unfortunately haven't, and I wish I could have, but uh, our artistic director has, has had some liaising with Sylvia, and from what I understand, she is thrilled that we are putting this on in Melbourne. Hmm. The Red Stitch production of Selling Kabul is on now. It opened last night and is running through until the 21st of May. You can get tickets at www.redstitch.net from 20 to 69 bucks. Uh, and if you've not been to Red Stitch before, it's at the rear of 2 Chapel Street, St Kilda East, just over the road from the Astor Cinema. Uh, and the production Selling Kabul, as we said, opened last night on until the 21st of May. I've been chatting with uh, Red Stitch Ensemble member and one of the members of the cast, Kishro Jones-Shukur. It's been an absolute pleasure, uh, Kishro, having you on the show. Thanks for coming in. Likewise. Particularly after opening last night. Thank, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure as well. Thanks, Richard. Triple. Ah. into the home stretch of the program. Richard, with you here on Smart Arts. And I'm joined on the line by Hong Kong-born, Melbourne-raised and London-based artist Renee So to talk about her new exhibition, Provenance, at the Monash University Museum of Art. Renee, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, this is the first major survey of your work in Australia. What's it like to be invited to have this kind of opportunity to showcase your work to the Australian public? Um, it feels very special. I, um, I, I, uh, I really, I really um, appreciate it. And it's been, um, it's been great getting all my work um, back together in one and seeing it all 
together in one space. How does it feel looking at some of your earlier work, for example? Because I know for myself as a writer, I might read something that I wrote 10 years ago and sometimes cringe at it and go, oh, I could do so much better now uh, and be tempted to rewrite it. Or other times read stuff and, and go, oh, I don't even remember writing that. It's really good. What's your personal relationship like with some of your older work, given that this is bringing together, I guess, uh, at least a decade's worth of art? Uh, yeah, it is a bit of that, but I've also selected out all the all the things that would make me cringe. They're not, they haven't included them in the show. Very wise. And, it, and it's it's just nice to revisit old work because I haven't a lot of the work I haven't seen in about ten to twelve years, and it's nice to see it all together in one spot. Now you work in ceramic works, uh, in ceramics, and also with textiles, and I'm really interested in uh, the way you represent some of your influences and ideas. Some artists will uh, wear their influences on their sleeves. Others will, over time, the influences are hidden but subtly there if you know where to look. You're deliberately referencing some historical sculptural practices, for example, Assyrian art, uh, and also what even Neolithic art with some of the, the, the Venus figures uh, carved in stone that people may be familiar with. Talk to us about yeah. kind of, kind of uh, reflecting and bringing those past art forms and art styles into the present through your work. Um, I'm just trying to uh, draw a light on them so people can, can see them and maybe investigate them on their own. I also thought I was being a bit more subtle in my references, like I'm... I, I'm kind of mixing loads of references in from different times all at once and just making something look um, familiar but, and, but not, um, not totally specific. Now, in terms of mixing those influences, talk to us about how they manifest in a, in a particular work. Um, I don't really know. I just... I think it's just things which you, influences which you have, you store in your brain, and then um, they, they kind of just come out sub, subconsciously when you're making stuff. Like you know, like you re you remember you remember bits and pieces of things, but I don't I don't pay attention to um, geography and time time periods. So they, I guess your brain is taking those influences and filtering them through a sieve and what, kind of recreating them so that then, yes, somebody might look at a, uh, an object like uh, Woman One from 2017 and see kind of echoes and hints of the past in there, but also see your own spin on the work. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So, so not, yeah, nothing is overt, but it's all, it's all like in there. It's all kind of mixed up. Visiting the museums in London, I understand, was uh, helped inspire some of these work, particularly some of the Assyrian sculptures that you saw. Yeah, it just expanded my um, knowledge of art history and extended it, you know, not just into looking at, I guess, European European art, but going like way back to the beginning of time and at different cultures as well, like from a non non Western perspective. 
Is there also a sense of conflict involved at looking at works in uh, some of the major London museums, given that they are effectively uh, looted and stolen from uh, around the world during the, the days of the British Empire? Yeah, there is that too, which is why the title of the show is called Provenance, because it's, it's, tr it's trying to um, make people think more about the, or the origin stories beyond um, its life in the museum. Which is certainly something that I think uh, people, some people in the art world would be f very familiar with the, the idea of provenance and documenting work, where work comes from. Here in Australia, even just at the moment, for example, there's discussion around the provenance of uh, work by Aboriginal artists uh, questioning the involvement of, kind of white hands in the making of the work. So prov provenance is very much front and centre at people's mind. Uh, Front yeah, of old people's mind. Um, with uh, with this exhibition, for example, with a work like um, Unknown Woman from 2019, which I look at and I can see references to classical sculpture, but I can also see the the way that you've elongated the legs, for example, that you're bringing something new and different to it. What do you hope when people that people will will read and, and consider when they look at your work? Um. Just a, an appreciation of the past and how long the history of ceramics is, and how you know how many people have have used the material, and just the breadth of the breadth and the range of what has what is possible. Does that apply equally to your uh, to the, the the works you're making uh, with uh, with fabric and textiles? Yeah, it is. It's um, I'm just taking yeah, like craft, craft materials and craft mediums and um, bringing them into a, an art gallery. Just so yeah, so people can view um, view it also as art, just to elevate it a bit more from its kind of the, you know the art craft. Divide. Yeah, which it baffles me in some ways that that divide still exists, but it uh, is clearly still an issue in some areas. Yeah, I agree. I think it's getting better with with ceramics and textiles as well. I'm seeing more shows internationally of textile artists and ceramics seems to be a bit more embedded into contemporary art. Yeah. Now, I know a couple of years ago you um, kind of expanded your practice by learning to weave. Talk to us about that. Um, I did. It wasn't very successful. Um, so I do appreciate people who, who weave very much. Yeah, it, I liked it, but it didn't stick, unfortunately. But which is a, something that fascinates me about the artistic process is that in, in some ways all art is an experiment to see what will work. Yeah, that's really true. And, and also just or learning, always learning new skills and techniques and working with um, new materials. You shouldn't just stick to one thing. Now, given that you've been involved in uh, selecting the works for uh, this exhibition, uh, talk to us about trying to, uh, 
I guess try to capture the, the array and the breadth of your work over uh, the period that's represented in the exhibition. Uh, given that you've just said, for example, your experiment with weaving was ultimately unsuccessful, is there any re reflection and reference to that in the exhibition or have you just gone, well, we'll just ignore that little bit of my practice for now? Yeah, I just ignored it. <laughs> it's not in there. <laughs> it's just the great, greatest hits as far as possible. And is there much in the way of uh, textile work or have you chosen to focus more on your sculptural work? No, there is a there is one there's there's six galleries in the museum and one is dedicated to the textile works. Now the exhibition that we're discussing, Renee So Provenance, is showing from uh, tomorrow, the twenty no, or is it today? What's the date today? Is it's it? yeah, it's tonight. It's it tonight. Yeah. tonight at six o'clock. I was suddenly yeah. going, is it the twenty sixth or the twenty seventh today? I should know that, but yeah, twenty seventh. So, yeah. I so, definitely know. <laughs> now, I spoke to another artist earlier uh, in the show, Diego Ramirez, who also has an exhibition opening tonight, and he said he was leaving the station to go back and complete the hanging and the installation of the work. Is that how you're spending part of your day, or is, can it, are you at the point where you can start to relax and look forward to the opening? Uh, no, there's no time to relax. There's still a lot to do. I can, yeah, I can empathise with Diego. Now... This exhibition is curated by uh, Mama's Charlotte Day. Talk to us about working with Charlotte to, to bring the exhibition uh, together. Um, it was really fun. I really like her. And she, she had a lot of trust in me and kind of gave me a lot of... Um, you know, she just let me make my own decisions and was supportive throughout the whole process. Now, when, out of interest, when did you relocate to London from Melbourne? It was 18 years ago in 2005. So I was 30 when I left Melbourne. And do you still... What do you consider yourself now in terms of... Uh, uh, as an artist, if, if somebody says, are you an Australian artist, are you a, a British artist, are you a Hong Konger, what's your... How do you see yourself? Oh, that's... Yeah, I really don't know. Um, yeah, I'm all of the above. But it's kind a, of just, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. It, it certainly sounds, though, as if this period in the UK has been kind of very influential on your, your current body of work. Yeah, I think it has. Yeah, the, yeah just the, the exposure to the objects in the museums that they have you know, really um, shifted my practice. And will people be able to see that shift um, kind of overtly referenced in the exhibition? Will they be able to kind of trace uh, the evolution of your work and see that shift play out before their eyes? I don't think they can because all the work in the show is stuff I've made since I've, I, ba I based myself in London. So, the, yeah, the earlier work isn't, it won't be... Displayed. As we were saying earlier, it's that kind of, we'll just leave that off to the side. It's that, it's that, yeah, that cringy stuff didn't make it, thank God. <laughs> 
Uh, I look forward to seeing what did make it into the exhibition. Renee So Provenance on, uh, from today, the 27th of April through until the 9th of July at Monash University Museum of Art, MAMA, uh, which is located on the ground floor of Building F at Monash University Caulfield. Don't go out to Monash Uni the other Monash campus. You want to go to Caulfield uh, on Dandenong Road. And more details at www.monash.edu forward slash M-U-M-A. Mama. The gallery is open Tuesdays to Fridays, 10 to 5, Saturdays, uh, 12 to 5, and closed on Sundays. And entry is always free. Renee, with the exhibition opening tonight, obviously there'll be a lot of focus on that. What about the next couple of weeks? Are you doing floor talks and uh, curatorial talks in conversation, for example? I've been doing that throughout this week because I leave on Monday. So that's yeah, that's all been happening in the past few days. Okay. So but I've, yeah, I've done all that. I've done talks and radio and tutorials. Well, I hope they've gone well, and I hope the exhibition is warmly received when it opens tonight. Renee, so provenance opening Me tonight. Me too. Thank you so much. <laughs> all the best, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 